Welcome back, Action Alerts Plus members. We have yet another podcast this week, and one in which I'm, I can't even begin to tell you how happy I am to have this conversation. That's right. We're talking with Carly Gardner, the one, the only, from DeCarly Trading. You know her as one of our AAP team members. You've seen her insight, her wisdom, her smarts on more than a few Friday Daily Rundowns. But today, we're going behind the curtain, going to have a bigger conversation with Carly. And with that, Carly, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Chris. I am. Um, it's going to be fun. It it will be fun more more for me than for you, but that's okay. The uh, no, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I I really do appreciate you carving out some time. I know it's busy, um, but you know you bring a lot of uh, smarts, particularly in the areas that you tend to focus in. But generally speaking, as well, and I I really hope that the AAP members can um, really understand how you look at the market, the markets you look at, um, and how you go about doing what you do. So that that that's really the gist I wanted to talk about. But we'll we'll sure. sprinkle in some other things, you know, the Fed, the market, and you know, some things right. along kind of as we go. So um as as we get started, you know, Carly, I'm a dyed in the wool equity geek, right? I got started uh, you know, at Solomon Brothers in equity research and you know that that's pretty much been my uh my path, as they say, but how did you get started in in this world, and what and how did you come to focus in on the area that you do? Well, I honestly, kind of a boring story. I I switched my major in college multiple times. I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. Originally, I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist, and I literally got like seventy percent through the program, and then I it dawned on me that you have to touch people, and I'm not a touchy feely <laughs> kind of person, so I'm like, wait, it's wait, out. wait. Yeah, seventy percent away, and then you realize I mean, you I had was, to touch people. I was pretty deep. I mean, I had my all the the you know the basics done, and then a couple, probably a year worth of uh, medical credits, and I'm like, yeah, this isn't gonna work. So, okay. switched my major to accounting. I hated accounting too, but I went ahead and got the degree anyway. Then I decided to get a finance degree on top of it, and I had finally found what I was looking for in finance. It just took me the scenic route, but I got there. And um, I mean, just like anyone else, started out as an intern in college, and um, I didn't love the equity side of things, probably just because the office I was working at was, they were just basically selling loaded mutual funds, and that I'm oh, not a good salesman. Yeah. I was just doomed for failure there. And so I ended up uh, searching around. I stumbled across a commodity shop, and I've been doing it ever since, and I love it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, similar to that, if you told me the double uh, math and economics major, like if you went back in time and whispered in my ear and said, boy, you won't believe how much writing you're doing, I would have laughed at you, you know, and but 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 we are where we are. Right. So what it's what crazy, is it? Yeah. What is it that um, kind of pulled you into the commodity market? Because, you know, what I, what I like about the equities is that, you know, there, there, there's a tremendous amount of data. It's a little like detective work, you know, and, and you sometimes you got to be a little patient. Sometimes you get frustrated. But what was it that spoke to you about commodities? Because, I mean, they're super informative, no doubt, but it can be it can be a little wild. Oh, absolutely. This is not uh, this life is not for everybody. I mean, I, I love it today, but there are days where I absolutely it, Hate it. it because because it is a really treacherous place, whether you're on the brokerage side or the speculative side or whatever. Leveraged markets, even if you're trying to deleverage the market, like trading an ETF or something, there's still uh, inefficiencies or those ETFs are subject to the 
leverage that are in the actual futures markets because most ETFs are taking people's money and buying futures. So it's really just a chaotic marketplace. Um, which can be really good or really bad. Luckily, over the years, we've, you know, I've, I've seen just, I'm not going to say I've seen it all because the last three years have proven that you literally will never be able to say that. Just anything, anything goes. But I've seen a lot. I've learned a lot of really hard lessons. And so my goal is to try to um, help others maybe shorten their learning curve a little bit. And the nice thing about commodities is it's always different. Uh, every day is different, always learning something new. And the lastly, I'll just say what I love about commodities is commodities aren't destined to go higher like stocks are, which is kind of a drag for anybody that's a long-term investor. But for somebody with a personality like me, that's a little bit different. Anyone that knows me in my personal life knows I'm not, I'm definitely not vanilla, little, little out there. And so I like to be somebody that, that looks for things against the grain. And so when I see uh, the herd doing one third thing, I try to look for reasons why maybe the herd might be wrong. And in commodities, that works really well. I, I'm sure a lot of ears just perked up when you were finishing up what you were saying, mine included. But right. let's 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 stick to some some lessons and learnings here. What so you, you said that you learned a lot of hard lessons. What, what what would be one or two that you could impart to the listeners of AAP? Well, I'll I'll go with a a recent a couple of recent examples in crude oil. We went in crude oil from 2020 to 2022 and a half, we'll say. We went through like multiple black swans in a very short amount of time. And on the brokerage side of things, I can personally tell you that I, I know for a fact that those events wiped out a handful of commodity brokers. And the reason being, most people don't realize, but the commodity broker is responsible for their clients. Um, um, let's just debit accounts. I don't know if it, anyone understands that, but in commodities, you can lose more than you have on deposits. So if you put 20,000 in the account, it's possible you might lose 30,000, 40,000 if you're over leveraged or you're in the wrong place at the wrong time or just yeah, a black swan event comes up and, and bites you. Um, so in those situations, it's up to the broker to make the exchange whole to make sure that the system continues running normally. And there's situations where the broker, him or herself, is on the hook for tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I had that occasion uh, happen twice in two years. And so it's wow. just been really, really rocky ride. I learned some things. I I hope that we never repeat those sort of things on the brokerage end or the speculative end. But uh, in the end, it's a, it's a business. As a broker, I basically make a living taking commission in exchange for accepting risk. And it's up to me to decide who's worth the risk and who's not and manage it accordingly. And so again, learn some lessons. Wow, that's, uh, yeah. I have to be honest, that's not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> so so talk to me though in, in the world, so when we look at the world of, of stocks, right, there's you know mm -hmm. industry specific stuff, there's macro stuff, there's uh, geopolitical stuff we have to watch out for. You know, is, is it kind of the same way? Do you pay attention to all those factors as well? Or, or how do you zero in on say, I, I'm focused on, you know, either copper or wheat, just as examples, what what would you tend to, you know, drill down on? Sure. So you, you're right. We do pay attention to those things. Now, one of the mistakes that I've made the last couple of years is not paying enough attention. For example, um, everybody knew Russia was thinking, considering invading Ukraine, but in the back of our minds, we all kind of, I think a lot of us got a little complacent in thinking that they weren't 100%. that crazy. 100%. <laughs> so, 
So I've shifted my mindset a little bit, but yes, we do pay attention to that. But more importantly, what I look at, whether I'm analyzing commodities or even like stock indices or treasuries, is I look at seasonality. Um, most people that are in the equity markets kind of forget about seasonality because in commodities, it's the forefront. Like we all know grains are subject to a planting and a growing and a harvesting cycle. Uh, stocks don't have such a... Uh, like we don't title those cycles, but those cycles happen every year. Uh, for example, the next three to four weeks is normally bullish for the stock market. In the, during these times of year where markets tend to do certain things, it, fundamentals almost really don't even matter. They just do what they're going to do. Uh, not every year. I mean, some years it does the exact opposite. And on the years that it doesn't follow the seasonal tendency, it's literally just a complete mess. It goes the other way very sharply. So the seasonals aren't a guarantee. Obviously, nothing is. But it's. I found that over time, um, it's just not a good idea to bet against the seasonals, at least not without, not in any big way. Let's put it that way. You know, is that you're talking about that for the market or for particular industries as well? Um, I don't drill down to the underlying industries, to okay. be honest. I'm just looking no, no. at the assets themselves. Um, but there's definitely some clear patterns in, in the stock market that most people just forget about because they get caught up on, well, the economy looks terrible, the numbers are softening, inflation, but they forget all about the fact that people have, there's certain times a year that tax money comes in, tax money goes out, you know, these things matter. No, I think you're I think you're 100 percent correct. I, I noticed recently this isn't a seasonality thing, but I think some of the more recent lift, at least in the stock market, was, uh, you know, FOMO, if you will, because of the inflows that we started to see coming back in, not not just in the equity markets, but in the tech markets in particular. But, um, you know, I, I agree with you with seasonality, but I admit that I'm not one who drills down on it for the market. I, I tend to think more when I'm you know, doing my homework on a particular company, I, I always try to look at um, the seasonal pattern in their sales, their profits, if, if there is one, um, and then try to figure out if there's any other, you know, uh, demand drivers when, in terms of seasonality. So for any, and, and this is the reason why I asked you this. So like for American Water Works, we're right in the, the, the middle of the summer now, water consumption is high. So that tends to be a very uh, positive operating environment, right, for that. So, but um, talk to me now though, Carly, on your view about the economy, because I, I'm really curious to this because um, we're, we've seen uh, construction, particularly non-residential construction pick up, but I, I was chatting with someone the other day and they said, yeah, but we're not really seeing the commodities tied to this really take off. Is, are you seeing that? And if so, what do you make of that? Well, so a couple things. Um, first, I'm just going to quickly touch on something you mentioned a, a few minutes ago It in that um, you mentioned the FOMO trade and that pushing mm -hmm. the market up. And that's another thing. In addition to seasonality, another thing I look at that most people tend to just kind of forget is market positioning. Markets are very, very complicated, but if you pull everything out, they're actually kind of simple. Markets can only go up if there's more buyers than sellers or mm. buyers are more mo motivated. They can only go down if there's more sellers than than buyers. Now, like in if, if we take the big sell off uh, that occurred like in late 2022 in the stock market, everybody was bearish. Everybody that that thought the market was going down had already either gotten short or liquidated their portfolio or did what they want to do. So the crappy fundamentals literally didn't matter because there's no one left to sell. 
So those types of things, they, they do matter in the short run. In the long run, maybe they don't, but in the short run, they do. So I try to focus on that as well and not get caught up in, in the hype. Um, sometimes so, I get, people get so me, really mad at me for doing that, by the way. No, 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 that's all right, though. I mean, you're you're reading the data, you know, and, and it's important, right? But so let, let me just ask you a couple of questions here. So yeah. in that instance, when you're when you identify that folks are bearish, Right. right. So some people will look at the VIX. Some will look at the fear and greed index. Right. Is there anything else that you you tend to zero in on to to really say, oh yes, this is the the tone of the market? Right. So earlier this year, we started to notice that um, speculators in the futures markets were getting extremely aggressive on the short side of the market. So uh, the government, the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, puts out a report every week. It's called the Commitment of Traders commitments of traders. And basically it tells us which groups of traders, small speculators, large speculators or hedgers are short, long, indifferent and to what magnitude. And so what we notice is the large speculator who generally be the smart money, but they have a tendency of getting too aggressive at the wrong time. So they had been accumulating short positions and we got to a situation about two weeks ago that uh, that group of traders is holding the largest net short position in the history of E-mini S&P futures. And that, and that was kind of a clue to us that uh, it doesn't matter if the economic data melts down. It doesn't matter if, if Powell raises rates anymore. Everybody's already short because they already think that, that the fundamentals are lousy. And so uh, it just created a situation where the shorts had to be squeezed out. Unfortunately, that's just the nature of the game. And there's a lot of money on the sidelines and there still is. And so that money has to go somewhere. And when people start seeing assets move without them, they, as you mentioned, they get fear of missing out. And then it kind of piles on on top of each other. So that report, the Commitments of Traders, this, mm -hmm. this weekly um, publication, is, is that one of your go-to reports? It is. I look at it every single week. Now, I wouldn't make a decision or form an opinion just solely based on that. I mean, you know how this stuff is. There's a lot of moving parts and oh, it's a yeah. tool in the toolbox. And I've found that when uh, positions get really extreme, overcrowded trades, more often than not, you're due for some mean revision uh, trading. And so you really want to be careful just jumping on any bad bandwagon because once the boat gets too full, it's very liable to tip to the other side. Totally agree. The the um, strategy that we use with AAP is, uh, or I should say, the word that we use is triangulate, triangulate, triangulate. You know, whether it's you know trying to get a beat on the economy, uh, you know, what's is inflation, you know, what's it doing, or even stock prices, right, or stock valuations. I should say, always trying to approach it from the vantage point of two or three things. And I'm sure, I'm guessing you're like me that the more confirming data points you get, right, the higher your conviction level. That is true. Now, I probably look at uh, between sentiment, COT reports, um, the chart and fundamentals and seasonals. OK, so we're five, we're up to five. So I've never actually <laughs> literally counted them, but there's five things I look at. So I don't need all five of them to come into line. But if they do, that gives me a lot of confidence. Um, but, yeah, you're you're exactly right. You're the thing that this game is really a mental game. It's a game of patience. And that's true whether you're speculating or you're long-term investing. I've seen a lot of long-term investors really literally ruin their retirement years by panicking and selling at horrible times or uh, loading up the boat at, at really silly high prices. So you have to be very careful and patient. And the, the only right way to do this is the way that uh, 
allows you to make good decisions. So keep yourself in a situation where you're not stressing yourself out. You're not ruffling your own feathers and you'll probably make a lot better decisions. And in the long run, you're probably going to be a lot better off. So I do my best to keep my patients right. We, 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 we run the portfolio as a mm -hmm. medium to long-term um, time frame, but there are times, let's be honest, that your patient gets tested. So, sure. so what, what do you, Carly, what do you say to yourself, you know, Hey, Carly, step back, be patient because, because right. the, the risk is, and this is where it can fall apart for people. They become over-invested uh, from an emotional perspective. Uh, how do you, how, how do you walk yourself back? Well, the thing is we're human and nobody's, well, there's, I've met people that are literally have nerves of steel and this kind of stuff just doesn't impact them, but that's because they're wired weird, like differently and probably not in a good way. So, I mean, <laughs> most of us have emotions and feelings and we've worked really hard for our money. So we want to keep it. So there's really no perfect way to do it. But what I found just in life in general is, um, I would rather miss an opportunity than, and let me put it this way, I'd rather be on the sidelines wishing I was in the market than in the market wishing I was on the sidelines. Because once you're in, your judgment gets cloudy and things get hairy and it's a lot harder to make good decisions. So it's much better to miss something than to simply just, uh, you know, throw roll the dice and see what happens. I totally agree with you. Every time in my personal life when I have rolled the dice or made, made the mistake of listening to a friend and be like, oh, yeah, just blah, 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 it never, ever pans out. So what, what I hear from you is two words. You didn't say them, but selective conviction. That's what I heard. Uh, yeah, you're you have a much you're much more articulate than I am. I don't use fancy words like that, but yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I'm I am hardly the one who aced the uh, verbal portion of the essay. Not the verbal, yeah, the verbal port. Not not even verbal. It's the math and see, I can't even remember what was the other it's, side of the SATs. I can't even uh, remember. But that too long one. ago. Who knows? Too long ago, exactly. So I, I asked you a few minutes ago about uh, just some examples because um, you know I'm personally interested in in them given the AAP portfolio. But when we think about the larger economy, because I I think a lot of folks are trying to figure out right now. Hmm. Is the likelihood of that soft landing, is it increasing? You know, some of the recent data, the housing market in particular, seems to suggest that perhaps it is, perhaps it is. But there are some things on the forefront that I'm a little concerned with as it relates to the consumer. And I'm, I'm kind of mixing things here. But um, on the consumer side, it's the uh, the pause in student debt payments going away in September, October, which could impact the housing market. But for you, when you look at the economy and trying to get a beat on it, you know, a lot of folks talk about Dr. Copper, but are there mm -hmm. other commodities that you'll pay attention to as well to, to really, you know, get a sense of, yes, it's improving, it's slowing. What do you think? Well, I'm going to step outside of the conventional box and throw a couple things out there. So um, as a broker, I get to see things that other people don't see. So I'm getting to see the behind the scenes things. And usually a, a hint that the economy is softening for me is when we start to get uh, brokerage accounts closed, like cl people closing their accounts, taking their money home and putting it into to something safe. That's generally a red flag that something's going wrong. And we haven't, we're starting to see that a little bit, but it's not dramatic. In early 2022, even before the COVID news hit, we were, everybody was liqu liquidating their commodity accounts and, and going elsewhere because they're going for safety. Commodities like a, a speculative area, it's for risk capital. It's not for 
safe investment dollars. And so it, it just makes sense. So we see that behind the scenes. And also I, I live in Las Vegas and this is literally the capital of discretionary spending. It's a boom and bust city. I've been through the booms and the bus multiple times and we are booming. I mean, you can go on the strip any day of the week and it's packed and the restaurants are packed and they are they have not lowered prices. The prices are outrageous. So I know everybody's talking about a softening economy and I know there's some data points that suggest that, but um, I'm more of a soft landing camp or maybe even just a, a sideways to, to stable camp because we have to keep in mind the Fed is draining liquidity from the system. They've raised interest rates, but what we also need to acknowledge is for two years, they printed more money than we've literally ever printed in the history of the, the country. So there's still a lot of liquidity out there. Just because we've taken a little out of the punch bowl doesn't mean we poured, we didn't pour a whole bottle of tequila in there two years ago and we're still <laughs> living on the fumes. So uh, I think perspective is important. Now, I have to ask you about um, Vegas because how much of that do you think was recently due to the uh, big win <laughs> in the NHL by the local team there? So I'm going to say it officially. Vegas is no longer Sin City. We are Win City. <laughs> so all right, keep that okay. in mind. All right. No, that honestly, um, it's really helped the the city as far as tourism dollars to bring in sports teams. Uh, the NH NHL was the first one to do it, and it's ironic because for a decade. I've been here since the year. I've basically been here since 1999. We've been begging for sports teams and no one wanted to do it because of the gambling scenario. Uh, once the NHL finally took the step and realized this is literally the epitome of a sports city, because everybody that wants to travel to away games, they come to Vegas because why else? You know, why, why, why would you go anywhere else? Um, I mean, money is just flowing into the the two sports teams that moved here. And so supposedly uh, NBA team is is on the way and we've got an MLB B team that's getting pretty close to, to signing a deal. So that's part of it. But um, I mean, everywhere I go, I, I went to Sydney, Australia earlier this year and it was busy there as well. Everywhere I go, Utah, Colorado, you name it, it's packed. So you're in the camp of, it sounds like, soft landing. I think soft landing. I think we've probably been in some sort of weird rolling um, recession, like in the undercurrents. I know there's some people that are feeling the pain, but uh, I also know that you know half of the economy is actually thriving, while unfortunately the other half is is doing the opposite. I hate to say this, but the the whole COVID situation and the the overstimulating really was a giant wealth shift from one sector of the economy to the other. So the money's not gone. It's there. It's just only in a certain number of hands. I agree. I agree. But I also do think, though, that, you know, we've put quite a bit of distance right between us and the pandemic. And I, I think it's a little erroneous at this point to keep reading or keep touting, oh, all that covid money still on the sidelines. I, I'm not really I don't buy that for a second. So. Um, but you got to talk to I me about, but you got to talk to me about Dr. Copper because everybody talks about copper and the economy. So mm -hmm. what are you, what, what are you seeing in terms of Dr. Copper? What, what is he or she whispering in the ear of Carly Gardner? So copper's had a couple of, uh, rough trading sessions here just recently, but in the big picture, I think copper is probably a much better buy around 350 than it is a sell. So I can't rule out 330 to 350 in copper, just in a retest to the lows. Commodities are the type of market that um, they don't make it easy on people. If 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 the market is net long and there's stop 
sell stops below, the market's going to grab those sell stops, elect them, knock everyone out, and then make it move higher. That's ju that's just literally how it works. So I suspect copper probably gets a little weaker in the short run. Um, but in the long run, if we're talking like years, not weeks, I think copper is a really good deal down here. I think we're pushing uh, probably $5, maybe even a little higher by next year at some point. And when you're assessing where copper can go, whether it's you know the economy or some of the housing data is is that some of the stuff that you'll look at or are you just as as you said earlier of those five things i i didn't hear fundamentals on that list that's why i'm asking i i have fundamentals like all day long i've got business news television going i read all the the papers and the internet sites but the reality is in my opinion or at least on the commodity side fundamentals don't move markets in the long run maybe they do in the short run they really don't the price price actions based on uh, many other things as opposed to fundamentals. And then eventually fundamentals come into play. So I don't, I mean, I'm very aware of the copper stories, the the EV, you know, the electric vehicles and all those sorts of things that are going to probably at some point put pressure on it. What I'm more interested in is the US dollar is kind of on the brink of melting down. If it breaks below 100 on the dollar index and falls back into the 90s, which is a more normal and natural place for the dollar. That's where we were before the COVID uh, breakout a few years ago. If that happens without anything else changing, all else being equal, copper's at 450. Okay. And all of a sudden we could see, you know, for as I hear that, I'm thinking, oh, dollar gets weaker. Oh, that means US companies with international business get more competitive. Potentially there's some upside to be had. That's that's kind of way that I translate that. Okay. What yeah. what what else as we sit here, Carly, before the core PCE data for May and the barrage of upcoming economic data that we'll get next week? What 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 else is top of mind for you as you as as you do what you do? And and before you answer that, I Sorry, I, I do have a clarification. So we're medium to long term with AAP. I didn't ask you what your style is. Is it is it shorter term? Because you, you a couple times you've said weeks, not months. <laughs> so uh, for commodities are more of a, a short term uh, animal. That's just that's how they are because they don't uh, they don't go up over time. They don't pay dividends. So anybody that's involved in the commodity market should be looking at a shorter time frame, uh, weeks or months maybe a year, but probably not anything beyond that because things can change so dramatically. Um, I mean, just look at crude oil, how fast things change from, uh, you know, the world ending, Russia blowing up, you know, the Ukraine and all this sort of stuff to uh, crude going from 130 to, now we're in the 60s and not many people expected that to happen. No. Um, so things can change really quickly. You don't want to have too, you don't want to be too long-term. Um, so as far as commodities go, it's very short term. I mean, if we're talking like my personal investment uh, accounts, that's a whole different story. I'm looking at like decades and dollar cost averaging, just like the average person is. So, um, and one thing I should point out too, there's anybody that follows uh, these sorts of posts and, and uh, informational sites and things, they see, uh, see comments. There's a lot of really uh, negative people out there, especially on Twitter. I get it a lot. The reality is somebody that's bullish or bearish can be, they can both be right. They can both be wrong. It depends on time frame. So time frame really <laughs> makes a big difference in everyone's analysis. So my I try to approach things and I try not to criticize anyone else because their time frame might be completely different than mine. And maybe they're right in their their world and that, maybe I you can know, still be right. That is such a valid point because yeah. 
I, I can give some instances um, where I was chatting with various members of the AAP team and, uh, you know, we were saying negative on a name, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and the thesis kind of played out over time. Um, yeah. And we were right, but another, uh, like another team member would have traded it in between, right? So yeah. that that individual, uh, no, notice I'm going out of my way not to use any pronouns. Oh, sure. yeah. That that individual actually made money on the trade. So we, so to your point, we were both right, but uh, it really just depends on the time frame. Um, that's that that's candidly why, like you know, um, I could not do what you do for a variety of reasons, right? Um, you know, I, uh, maybe I'm simply weird in the other direction, who knows, but um, I, I, it probably has to do with my coming up in equity research, doing uh, industrials and machinery where we were looking at, you know, um, uh, strategies or timeframes that would span not, you know, weeks or months, sometimes not even quarters, but several quarters. So like, you know, one, one of the dirty little secrets of cyclicals is you really want to buy them when they're all washed out, earnings, earnings are compressed, you know, and they look really expensive, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, your, your EPS are all the way down, prices are where they are, but the math, oh, it's a big number. Right. But you're at the bottom of the cycle. So right. but, you know, so everybody has their uh, their, their things to watch. Um, one other thing that I want to talk to you about is um, one of my pseudo favorite commodity topics. Uh, corn, wheat, soybeans, um, okay. because I, because I know that you have talked with about talked about them in the past on on the daily rundowns. We obviously have deer. We pay attention to them because they are the driving force behind farmer income, which of course drives the replacement cycle for ag equipment. So um, recently, I think one of the reports uh, talked about how the summer heat was really kind of like hammering down on these. Uh, but then there was the recent issue with the, let's just call it the kerfuffle over in uh, Russia. Um, what are you making of it and, and how are you uh, seeing the the ag commodities playing out over the next couple, you know, weeks or months. Okay, so uh, a few weeks ago we had that big grain rally, as you just alluded to, and there were there was a lot of talk about oh, and you know, inflation's coming back. This is a sign that things are heating up again. But the reality is the grains kind of do this almost every year. It's it's a summer grain rally, and generally they are unsustainable. They can be really volatile, and they get people's attention. Um, particularly the news when you start seeing newscasters talking about the grain rallies, that's when you know probably the move's probably over and we probably reverse. And we've done exactly that. I would say that historically, uh, corn and wheat, soybeans are all at historically high prices. And the thing about commodities is technology and, and science improves every year. We get better and better and better at producing and growing. And we now have a lot of competition from South, uh, South America, Brazil is competing with us on the grain front. And so my personal opinion is uh, going forward, the path least resistance will be lower for the grains in the next uh, couple of months and maybe even a couple of years. So we wanna be real careful about getting complacent with these higher prices. Okay, so let me let me gently push back if I can. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, so when we had, we've spoken to Sal Gilberti. He, he's one of the mm -hmm. guys behind Tucrium and they have several, you know, uh, ag commodity ETFs out there. And mm -hmm. his point is that um, you don't really know what the prices are gonna be 
uh, for the coming, you know, the next several months as we move into the harvest season until we complete the harvest, see the quality of the crop. And, you know, more often than not, um, he, I think if I remember correctly, he thinks that long-term we've probably got more, more uh, skewing towards a shortage than an actual surplus. So of course he's long-term bullish. Those are his strategies. I will call that out. Um, but so, so do you, is there noise in the summer months that tends to solidify so we have a better sense September, October? Absolutely. This is a really, really noisy time of year. And anybody that's ever traded grain futures in the summer knows you can get your head ripped off in, in both directions. Um, because there's so many uncertainties, it's we're dealing with mother nature and weather and uh, it's either too dry or too wet. So he's absolutely right in that there's a lot of uncertainty. But if you look at seasonal charts over the last 30 years, these types of rallies this time of year generally are short-lived. I mean, they can be really they can be really stunning. I'm not going to say they can't. We've seen some real doozies, but they usually give it all back by October, November. So um, one year that won't be the case. In fact, just uh, last year, that was that's how it went. We summer rally turned into a basically a year end rally and it just never quit. So those things can happen, but they're the exception, not the rule. Okay. All right. So Carly, again, you've been gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. I, I really, uh, I, I like the fact that, um, the AAP members are going to have a much better sense of not only what you do, but the value you bring to what we do. Uh, but before we get out of here, anything we didn't talk about that we should have. Uh, I think you've you've done a really good job at covering just about everything. Um, the, Come on, there's got there's yeah. got to be some there's got to be something. The what? I'll I'll end with this. Okay. So most I would venture that most people that watch this video probably aren't interested in speculating in commodities that much. But what they might be interested in the futures and options markets were actually created for hedging purposes. Uh, most people don't use them that way, but that's exactly why they were created. And so. It's worth considering uh, using futures to hedge your stock portfolio, especially when when the indices are high like they are now. You can put off some really good um, hedging strategies. I, I wrote a piece for Real Money, I think it was last week or maybe the week before. So if they want to go back and take a look at it, and it's basically the idea of selling call options against the E-mini S&P and using that money to buy put options. It's free insurance if you own the underlying. So if you own... Uh, $250,000 worth of roughly S&P 500 allocated stocks. You can put that hedge on and it's free insurance. You have your downside covered uh, under a 10% correction and you're not paying anything for it. The only thing you're doing is giving up some upside potential, but at these lofty levels, the upside's probably not going to be too outrageous anyway. So I think it's a fair trade. Excellent. Um, one quick follow-up on that. Are you, and again, don't want to put words in your mouth. Are you thinking that we're, it, just sticking with the S&P, just based off that comment, doesn't sound like you think we're in a new bull market yet. Uh, I'm not, I don't think it's a new bull market. I'm not quite sure we're done with this exact move, this particular move. I wouldn't be shocked to see 4,500, 4,520 in the S&P 500 first before we roll over again. And the reason I say that is we're going into a seasonally strong time of year. And a lot of the shorts have covered. They covered uh, last week or the week before on that big short squeeze. It was actually two weeks ago. But there's still a lot more shorts than there are longs out there. So there's potential for some more short squeezing and some more FOMO trade. And in addition to that, we've got the 4th of July coming up. Holidays have this weird impact on the market. Everything, the trade slows down. It gets really liquid and markets tend to grind higher. So you don't want to be fighting that. 
Agreed. Agreed. Makes it, it makes me think of the end of August when no one's around and volume is light. All right, Carly. Thanks for joining us. Um, thanks, I, I, I look forward to uh, watching you soon on uh, an upcoming daily rundown, but we will have you back. Don't think you're getting out of this that easy. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Chris.